Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Galatians chapter 3 is page number 973. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, and while I would hope this would be true uh, every Sunday, today in particular, I do want you to have something in front of you to look at. So a Bible, your phone, something, it will be on the screen, but I would prefer you to be looking at a text because of what we're going to do this morning. Let me explain what we're going to do before I read our scripture passage. We're beginning a brand new section this morning here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and because of that, I want to do what I have typically done each time that we have entered a new section of scripture, and that is to do sort of a a 10,000-foot flyover of where we're headed so that we can get an understanding of what's to come, and I do think that's very important in Bible study. Obviously, we, we love digging into the text, and we want to understand what the Scriptures have to say, but <clears throat> sometimes we just need to, to stop and know where we're going, because if you don't know where you're going, you may not appreciate all the, the things that come in each and every step on, along the path, and so and that's what this is for. This is kind of an intro sermon, sort of an overview sermon, definitely not uh, one of our normal sermons. We're not going to be digging into the text in any detail today. Uh, We're just going to get a big picture look at where the text is headed, which means that today also then my scripture reading is going to be a little different. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know my normal pattern uh, is to read a larger section of scripture regardless of which verses in that section we may be looking at on a given Sunday. And I do that for two reasons. One, because context matters. And I like to keep the context of whatever we're studying in, uh, in view, no matter which specific verses we're looking at. And so I think reading that each and every week helps us with that, keeping context in view. But secondly, because I think that the repeated and regular reading of larger chunks of Scripture gets God's Word in our minds in ways maybe uh, we don't even recognize sometimes. I guarantee for all of you who have been with us over the last however many uh, months we've been in Galatians 2, 11 to 21, you probably know those verses far better than you realize now just from hearing it on a weekly basis. So uh, that works great when our section is 11 verses long, like Galatians 2, 11 to 21 was, but our new section this morning is slightly longer than that. It begins here in chapter 3, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. So two full chapters in our English Bibles, which means then that on a weekly basis, I will not be able to read that to us, okay? Jordan is a taskmaster, and he only gives me a certain number of minutes each Sunday, and if I go over that, I'm in trouble that week, and I don't want to be in trouble. It's Pietro's fault. Some of you don't understand that joke, and that's okay. Uh, So what we're going to do, though, uh, since I do have time today, I'm going to read the whole thing, okay? One time, we're going to read the entire section of Paul's argument here from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 31. And then over the weeks ahead, I'll break this big section up into some subsections, and that's what we'll read on a weekly basis going forward. Does everyone understand the plan? Everyone got a Bible, a phone, something in front of you to be looking at while I'm reading here? All right. Let's read Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 431, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Knowing then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, know then, excuse me, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, 
but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, may, may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I again, am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Good job. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the, the scriptures this morning, I pray that you will give us a, this big picture understanding of what's going on right now and why Paul is laying out this argument that we have just read here. He we know he's dealing with an issue. We understand, at least to a point, what's happening in this city, in this area, but, but we need to understand it even better, and we need to apply it to ourselves because all of us, like the Galatians, are so easily drawn away from the sufficiency of Christ. And so I pray that this morning, through our time in your word and even our time around your table, that we will be reminded that Jesus is enough, that that will be our confidence and our joy as we walk out of here today. Spirit, help us. Make us more like Christ through this time, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of where we're at in this letter. Since we're at the beginning of a new section, I think it's good to give us a uh, little review here to help us out. After beginning this letter with a mostly typical Pauline opening there in verses 1 through 5, Paul gets right to the point of why he is writing to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says to them, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Oh, come on. Let him be, okay, accursed. And he is so adamant on that thought, remember, that in the very next verse, he repeats it. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now that opening little section there teaches us three things right off the bat about this letter. Number one, it tells us that the issue in the Galatian churches, and remember Galatia is a region, not just a city. It's, a, it's written to a whole area of cities and churches in Asia Minor. It tells us that the issue there is that someone, or more likely someones, are there preaching a new and different gospel than the one that Paul had proclaimed and that the Galatian believers are at least contemplating, if not fully embracing, moving over to this new gospel. Second, it tells us that Paul is not happy about it. Duh. All right. Third, that was an easy one. It tells us that, uh, or shows us, excuse me, a little bit of the tone of where this letter is going. Because if you'll recall from when we studied those verses I just read to us a moment ago, when he says there in the text that anyone who preaches a different gospel than the one he first preached to them, anyone who would even, I would say, embrace a gospel that is different than the one they first embraced, the one that Paul preached, that they should be accursed, that word there literally means that they should be damned to hell for all eternity. Literally. If you, if you walk away from the gospel of grace in Christ alone, then you are deserving of the damnation that follows, is really what Paul is saying there. It's a very, very strongly worded statement of condemnation, probably one of the strongest that you will find in the New Testament. So, so we don't have to be you know, necessarily the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree to figure out that whatever's going on in Galatia is bad. Something serious and bad is happening here in the city, and Paul is writing to directly confront and address that issue, and at the same time then to plead and reason with these believers, these people that he himself poured time into, to, to not turn to this thing. Don't be fooled by this. Don't embrace this. Don't go that direction. This is a false gospel. And yet, as you look there at the beginning of Galatians 1, he doesn't tell us right off the bat the exact nature of this false gospel that's being proclaimed there. And that should make sense to us as to why he doesn't do that. They know what it is, right? I mean, he's writing to people who are in the middle of the situation. So he doesn't need to explain to them what the problem is. We, as readers who were removed from the original situation, we're interested to find out what it was, but they themselves knew, and so he doesn't, he doesn't get into it right away. What does follow that opening state, uh, section there is a somewhat... A lengthy defense of his own apostolic ministry that begins there in chapter 1, verse 11, and goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Remember that? He builds that timeline where he explains kind of what he did in ministry, particularly in relation to the Jerusalem apostles. And what we surmised from those details was that most likely the false teachers there in Galatia, they were approaching their new gospel, the preaching of their new gospel, by first attacking Paul. 
You know, that makes sense, logically speaking. If you can discredit Paul, you can discredit his authority, you can question whether or not he really is an apostle, whether or not his message is really authoritative, then, then you can destroy everything he's taught. And so they go after that, apparently with some vigor, because he takes a lot of time to defend himself. And in fact, that's the very first defense in the letters, the defense of himself, showing that both his apostleship and his gospel are authoritative because they're from Jesus that he is neither dependent on nor in any way contradicting what you would find in Jerusalem. And that was a kind of a fine line he had to walk there as he did that. Because on the one hand, he doesn't want to, to make it seem like he's dependent on what's going on there, because that probably is one of their accusations. But at the same time, he needs to show what he preaches, that's what Peter preaches. That's what James and John and the rest of the men there in Jerusalem are preaching. And so he kind of dances that little dance there in that opening section. But again... Even at this point, we still haven't been given a firm explanation of what's going on in Galatia. And that's why then in chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, the passage we just finished, he begins to transition us to the actual issue that's going on. That's where he covers that confrontation he has with Peter from back at uh, some point in the past, their time in Antioch, when Peter, separating himself from the Gentile brothers, proclaims inadvertently, I don't think he did it purposely, but he ends up making a public statement in effect that the Old Testament law is still in effect, even for believers. And this, of course, is what is going on here in Galatia. These false teachers are telling the Galatian Christians that Jesus is not enough. Hey, you believe in Jesus? That's great. You think he's the Messiah? Great. Excellent. You're right. But if you really want to be a child of God, then you have to do what the children of God do, and that is observe the Old Testament law. That's easy. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. You want to be a believer, you want to be a child of God, believe in Jesus, keep the law, and you should be good to go. And I think this would have appealed to the Galatians particularly, because I think the abandonment of the law had led them to a great deal of of persecution. And, and I'm drawing that from clues sprinkled throughout this letter. You saw an example of that right at the end there of chapter 4. He makes a comment about the, the son of the, the free woman being persecuted by the son of the slave woman, and he's applying it to them. I think they're under some persecution there in Galatia. And if for nothing else, we can just look back at Acts itself. When Paul is first there in the Galatian province, he's in the city of Lystra, and he's preaching the gospel. And do you remember what happens to him there? He gets stoned. They drag him out of the city, they stone him, they think to death, they think he's dead, his co-workers think he's dead, they all leave. What does Paul do? He gets up and he goes on to the next city. Well, lucky for Paul, he gets to leave. But what do you think happens for all the believers there in Lystra and Derby and Iconium and all those other towns that he's visiting there on that first missionary journey in the province of Galatia? They're not so lucky. They don't get to just get up and, and leave. Their livelihood is there. Their families are there. Their homes are there. And so they're staying there. And I'm just kind of guessing if, if the unbelieving Jews in those towns are so zealous for the law that they are willing to stone Paul to death for preaching his gospel, do you think they're treating the believers who stay behind much better? I mean, I can't say it for sure, but I'm 99% sure then no, they're treating them pretty badly as well. And so there's probably a kind of a dual reason as to why these false teachers are having such an influence on the Galatians. I mean, saying that you still have to keep the law, well, that fits really nicely for people who grew up Jewish and that's their whole world and that's all they've ever known. And so now they don't have to abandon that. They can stick with it. That's good. 
And at the same time, keeping the law would probably mean that their message and their way of life isn't so offensive to their unbelieving Jewish friends and family anymore, and they probably won't be persecuted so much anymore. So hey, right, why not? In order to be saved, let's just go with that. You got to believe Jesus, and you got to keep the Old Testament law. They're both good things, right? So what's the big deal? Well, no, it is a big deal. It's a problem, and that's why he started where he did in 1, 6, and 9. 6 through 9, saying that if you embrace this false gospel, understand the end of it. You are accursed. You deserve to experience eternal damnation for abandoning the grace of Christ for this other gospel. So that's where we're at at the moment. So now, <clears throat> with that reminder, where are we going? Well, beginning here in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul now begins to address the Galatian believers directly with words of kindness and tenderness and understanding. Oh, foolish Galatians, right? Now, I get it. You guys have uh, not been to seminary like I have. You don't have a prestigious Master of Divinity degree like I do. You don't pretend to know the original languages like I pretend. So I get it. Let me, <laughs> let me help you understand what he's saying here in very plain and simple English. Are you ready? I'm going to translate this for you a little differently. You complete and total morons. You idiots. I mean, I, I'm, I'm expanding that a bit and making it a little loose, but that really does get to the very heart of what he is saying to them here to, to even be considering moving to a different gospel than the one he first proclaimed to them means that they are fools. They're idiots. This is why he follows that up with the question, who has bewitched you? And that's a very unusual word to see in the New Testament. Uh, and it means pretty much what you think it means. Who, who has cast a spell on you? I mean, as I'm thinking through the, the possibility that you would abandon the gospel of grace in Christ, the only thing I can come up with is that maybe a witch has appeared and cast an evil, evil spell on you that has caused you to abandon all logic, reason, and common sense. Are you under a spell? That's kind of the, the question and the general idea here. Um, it's pretty insulting. It's, it's really strong, again. You're going to get that all throughout this letter. He has got a very sharp tone with them because the issue he's dealing with is so serious. And we'll probably talk about this a little bit more next week. But I don't, I don't think he's purposely trying to be insulting here as if he's trying to, like, name-call them into changing. I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. I just think he is literally beside himself with confusion as to why in the world they would even consider what they seem to be considering. And so I think it's just an honest reaction on his part to this scenario. I don't get it. That's what he's saying to them. Now, part of the reason why he's so befuddled over this is because he seems to think that they should understand some things that, that apparently they don't understand. They should, they should understand some things about why the law is completely and totally incapable of and unable to bring them salvation. And again, my assumption here is that he is primarily addressing Jewish believers. Not that there are no Gentiles present in this church. In fact, I think we're going to see a couple of references to that along the way where he is very clearly and directly addressing Gentiles in the text. But primarily, he's talking to people who I would assume 
have grown up understanding the Old Testament law and Old Testament stories. And he seems to think they should know some stuff. But since that stuff isn't registering in their brains, apparently, Paul, in this section we're about to work through, is going to point out some things to them. And I want you to look at this with me just very quickly, just so you can see where this is headed. Because in this section, Paul's going to lay out, if I get all four of these correct, a biblical, historical, theological, and logical case for why the Old Testament law cannot save us. Okay, you got those four things? Work with me for a moment. Look in your Bibles right now. Look down at verses 6 to 18 in chapter 3. And I want you just to skim that section. Don't read it. I just want you to skim it. I want you to look for names, quotes, Old Testament story references, stuff like that. 6 to 18, just skim, don't read. Okay, you're done. What's the first name you saw there in verse 6? Abraham, very good. Now, I'm going to give you a quick Bible quiz. You can't prepare for this. Here you go. No cheating or asking anyone what the answer is. Abraham comes, A, before Moses in the Old Testament law, B, at the same time as Moses in the Old Testament law, or C, after Moses in the Old Testament law. So our options are before, same time, or after. On the count of three, say it and embarrass yourself in front of everyone. One, two, three. Before. Before. Okay, very good. You did better than the first group. All right. Uh, yeah, he came before. In fact, a long time before. If you look at verse 17, it tells you how long before. 430 years before the law is when Abraham is living. And, uh, oh, you know, let me think about this for a moment. Would you say that Abraham is a child of God? Think Jews would have said Abraham was a child of God? Absolutely. Wait a minute, I thought being a child of God was dependent on keeping the law. How is Abraham a child of God 430 years before the law comes if being a child of God is dependent on the law? I mean, if you're Jewish, that... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You know, that's a mind-blowing argument right there. We need to think about this. We need to understand how is it possible that the founder of our nation, right, the man God chooses to establish the nation of Israel is a child of God 430 years before the law comes. Uh, so that's why you're going to see him talking about Abraham's faith, uh, the covenant God makes with him, etc. This is kind of a big deal. Uh, look now next at verse 19. So having kind of explained or at least argued a little bit now from the example of Abraham, where does he go next in the text? He goes to this question here of, well, why then the law? I mean, if Abraham was the child of God 430 years before the law came, why... Why did God give us the law then? Do we even understand it, right? I mean, we want to be under the law, but do we even know what's going on in the law? <laughs> it's a valid question. They're, they're so adamant about turning back to this thing, and Paul's like, I don't think you guys know what you're turning back to. I don't even think you understand it rightly. You haven't even thought through the issues. You have no clue. So here, I'll help you. Let me explain to you the Old Testament law. And he's going to address that for a little bit there in the middle of his argument. Look next at, at chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Again, just skim it. Don't read it. Skimming means you look at every eighth word. Okay, that's a joke. Skim it. Uh, notice here he's beginning to draw an analogy. And even, uh, maybe I'll give you an extra second, back up to the beginning of chapter 4. And uh, what word 
seems to appear a lot in chapter 4, but really begins to appear a lot in verses 21 to 31. Do you see a word that keeps popping up? Slave and slavery. Well, notice who the analogy here is between, between Isaac and Ishmael and their mothers, Sarah and Hagar. And what's the purpose of this analogy? Well, you can answer that question by looking at verse 31. The purpose is to help us understand that if we go back to the law, what are we becoming again? Slaves. Yeah, again, I don't know how much you know about Jewish history, but uh, they were kind of touchy about the issue of slavery. (laughs) They had a background in that, if you don't recall. Charlton Heston played a part in that, I think, somewhere. Um, It's it's not an unloaded term for them. That whole idea is not just a... It's not just a loose or floating, like he can just throw it out there and it doesn't mean anything. No, it's going to mean something. You, wait, you're telling me you want to be in the, under the law? Do you know what being under the law means for you? Slavery. Well, what do you want to be? Slave or free? See, see you see where he's going with this? Now, obviously, we're just, we're just getting a, a picture, just kind of an understanding of what's going on here and how he's building an argument. But I want you to notice what all of these things have in common. They all have in common Old Testament Stories, characters, and references, they all are set in real, historical, and meaningful examples from Jewish history. They all make a unified point about salvation. Each one is driving home an idea about salvation not being under the law. And then clearly, in all of them, Paul is trying to reason with them and to help them understand what it is that they are walking away from, grace in Christ, and walking toward, which is the Old Testament law, which is why I said to you this section is made up of a biblical, historical, theological, and logical argument as to why the Old Testament law cannot save us. It's also why I think Paul is primarily speaking to Jewish believers, but in the end we'll see we all need the same thing, all of us. They probably should have understood some of the things that Paul was saying here, but they didn't. But for us, having not grown up Jewish, I mean, there's a lot of things here that we don't understand. A lot of things here we've just never really thought through. I mean, do you understand why it matters for us how Abraham is saved? I mean, that's one of the most pointed to examples in the New Testament, Abraham's faith. Why does that matter for you and I? We're not Jewish. Uh, It matters a lot. Do you understand how important Christ is to a right understanding of all the promises made to Israel? Abraham, Israel, they get all of these promises, but how does Jesus, the person, the man, Jesus Christ, fit into all of those things? People spend a lot of time batting those ideas around, and sometimes I think they forget that Jesus plays a part in there somewhere. Um, Do you understand why the law of Moses uh, was given and what it's for? I would say probably for most of us, myself included, the answer is no, not really. Maybe little bits and pieces, thoughts and understandings, but to try to get a bigger understanding of the law, boy, that's, a, that's kind of a big deal here in Galatians and something we're going to have to work for. And then finally, do you yourself sometimes or even often seek to put yourself under a law and not rest solely on the finished work of Christ? We've, I've asked that for, this is my third week now. I'm going to keep asking it because it's kind of one of the major themes of the letter to the Galatians. He needs them to understand that Jesus is enough. So if any of those things are true for us, then what we look at here in the weeks ahead, it'll be very helpful for us because it's going to, it's going to force us to wrestle with questions that most of us have probably never thought of. And it's also going to cause us to rethink a few things that maybe we thought we knew 
but all of it, all of it with one very clear and unified purpose. It's so unified, you're going to probably get sick of me saying it, but it doesn't matter because it's still true, that Jesus is enough. That's the one idea that keeps getting pounded in the letter to the Galatians, that Jesus is enough. Paul wants us to stand firm in that confidence to the end. Which is why, if I may make a shameless segue, this is a good Sunday for us to observe the Lord's table together. Because, you know, for the Jews, and I'm thinking about this from the Jewish perspective, in the law, what they had given to them there was a continual reminder of their sin. I mean, just think about the sacrificial system. This is an example, right? Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, what they have is a continual reminder that they're sinners and there's all this blood from bulls and goats and sheep and turtle doves and pigeons and it's never sufficient, it's never enough, it never satisfies, so it's constantly before them. Think of the purity regulations, this idea that there's such a thing as clean and unclean, and man, the constant battle that must have been to keep that, those things separated. Think of all the other commands and the impossibility of keeping all of them perfectly. In that sense, then, the law serves as a constant reminder of their own sinfulness and inability, which is basically what you see here in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. I think at least partially, if not more, of what Paul's referring to there is, is, is the law, the scripture imprisoning everything under sin. He says there that we, are, we were held captive under the law. But note there in verses 22 and 23, all of that had a very clear purpose, and that was to point us towards faith in Christ, that, that someone was coming, an offspring of Abraham was coming, who would perfectly fulfill and satisfy that law forever. And that God wasn't looking for us to do the same thing. Rather, he wanted us to rely on his perfect son who had done that in our place, to put all of our hope and our confidence and our trust in him and him alone. And that doing so, as we looked at even a little bit last week, makes us one with Christ. And we're going to really hit that idea of oneness with Christ in Galatians. And it's going to, man, it's going to have some impact on us because it's going to, it's going to, I hope and pray, affect the way we think about ourselves and the way even we live our lives on a daily basis, and I, like I hope it never has before. But understand, you know, being one with Christ, it makes us sons and daughters of God, children of God. And in his death, we die to sin and, and death and the law. And in his life, we now get to live now, not just in the future, now we get to live a new life in him. And so we have all of this stuff. And so whereas the law reminded, was a constant reminder of sin and failure, what are we given as the church? We're given a table. A table that is meant to tangibly and communally remind us that it all comes back to the body and blood of Jesus. How simple is that? That even in the table we're reminded that Jesus is enough. The bread reminds us that Jesus had to come in bodily form as a man, keep that law perfectly, sinlessly, and then die in our place on the cross. He dies as our substitute and then rises from the dead as our substitute. The cup reminds us that his blood was the ransom paid. Is it Peter who says we weren't ransomed with perishable things like silver and gold, but we were ransomed with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike all those lambs who came before, whose blood was never sufficient to pay for sin perfectly, Jesus' blood does it once for all. Once for all paid. He's enough. He's enough. And so this table reminds us of that truth, that Jesus 
is enough. That's all we need. That's all we have. That God accepts us, not because of our righteousness, past or even present. You can't be more worthy to come to this table. There's no moment of reflection or prayer or confession I can give you now that makes you more worthy to come here. Jesus is enough. We are perfectly and forever accepted in Christ in Christ alone. Remember, this table shows us Jesus is enough. We're given one picture, the body and blood of Christ. And so this bread represents his body, which was broken for us for the payment of our sins. And so we do this in remembrance of and in thankfulness for him. In the same manner, this cup, it represents the new covenant we have with God through the blood of Jesus. And so we do this in remembrance of and in thankfulness for him. <clears throat> in a passage we used to read every time we would observe the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul ends by saying, for as often as we eat this bed, bread, not the bread, eat this bread and drink this cup, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So whether that's today or it's a thousand years from now, we go out with the same confidence no matter what, and that is that Jesus is enough to the glory of God the Father. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ, that he is enough, that you accept us not because of our righteousness, that we can't come to this table nor stand before you worthy of Jesus. But you have given, to him, given him to us freely. In grace, we have been accepted. We have been adopted as sons. And so now we have this visible, tangible, and communal reminder that we are one in him, with him, and we can stand before you perfectly righteous, just, declared righteous for all eternity, not guilty because of the finished work of Christ. So may we never turn back from that. Our hearts are like what John Calvin says, they're little idol factories. And one of the idols that it constantly wants to produce is self-righteousness, that somehow we can, we can deserve your love. Drive that far from us, Lord. Help us to rest in this truth and in this truth alone that Jesus is enough and that is all we will ever need. So we thank you for this time in your word. Please bless it, Lord. Spirit, use it to make us like Christ, we ask in his name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.